We're going to read two different sections of Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read the first nine verses, then we're going to skip over to verse number 38 and read a portion there. But Matthew 12, beginning in verse number 1 for our Bible reading. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was in hunger? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And now over to verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Amen. We'll end our Bible reading there at the end of verse number 42. And I want to draw your attention to three specific phrases. Maybe they jumped off the page at you and you caught them as we were reading. But in this passage of Scripture, we see Jesus Christ identifying himself as being greater than three things. In verse 6, he says he's greater than the temple. In verse 41, he says he is greater than Jonah. And in verse 42, he says he is greater than Solomon. These three statements represent for us a biblical summary of the work of Jesus Christ as our mediator. A mediator is one who stands in the middle of two conflicting parties, two, two groups, two individuals, two whatever, that are at odds with one another somehow. And it's that mediator's job to do a work of reconciliation, to make things so that the two parties are, are no longer fighting. They both come to some agreement and in secular terms that often indicates some measure of compromise 
not in the negative sense, but some measure of uh, concessions. Somebody has to give a little bit. Both sides normally give a little bit and try to meet in the middle. That's the job of a mediator. One of the most encouraging truths of the gospel message is that Christ functions as a mediator for his believing people. And as a mediator, we learn in our catechism that these three mediatorial offices of Christ he exercises are the office of the prophet, the priest, and of the king. Each of these three offices corresponds to the major ministries that we find in the Old Testament. you, You can't read very far in the Old Testament without coming across a prophet, a priest, or a king. Each of those men were types of the Lord Jesus. This is not a sermon to explain or teach on the subject of types per se, but every priest in the Old Testament, we just read from Leviticus chapter 1 in our our Bible reading. In Leviticus 1, it mentions the priests, Aaron's sons, the priests, Aaron's sons. Well, that whole family of Aaron, what became the Levites, the Levitical tribe, all of those priests were types of the Lord Jesus. There were good priests that were types of the Lord Jesus. There were bad priests, Nadab and Abihu, for example, and there were others that were bad priests. But yet still, in the typology, they were types of the Lord Jesus. They represented the fact, if nothing else, that they weren't the true priests that God had promised. They were sinful. They had deficiencies. And they weren't the fulfillment of it all. You have Old Testament prophets. Every single one of those Old Testament prophets were were sinful men. They declared the word of the Lord, but they had their own spiritual failings. They were sinners in their own right. Mentions Jonah. Jonah was a sinful man. Jonah disobeyed the Lord. He ran from the Lord. After Nineveh repented, Jonah went up on a mountain and he pouted. He was angry. He was furious that God was going to have the audacity to be merciful to the Ninevites. He was an angry man. He was a sinful man, but he was was a representative of what God had promised would come. There would be a prophet that would come that would declare the Lord's word. Every king in the Old Testament was imperfect. Even the greatest of them, David, you are very well aware of his sinful flaws. But yet each of these represented that which was to come. There would one day come a perfect prophet, a perfect priest, and a perfect king. And when Christ came, he revealed himself in this way. Not every word of a human prophet was inspired. But yet every word from the mouth of Christ was the inspired word of God because it was the word of God in the flesh. When Christ gave himself as a ransom for sin, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, he had no sin of his own that he had to deal with. You remember in the book of Hebrews, it speaks of those priests that first had to make an atonement for their own sins before they could enter in and make an atonement for the sins of the people. When Christ made himself a sacrifice for sin, he had none of that. As a king, all of his rulings are just and fair and right. 
No one can overthrow him. That's not to be said of earthly kings. They made unrighteous judgments, unrighteous rules, and were sometimes overthrown. Christ is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. Now, if you've ever driven a stick shift vehicle, you know that you're not supposed to grind gears. You have to put the clutch down before you throw it into second. Well, I'm throwing it into second with no clutch. I want you to turn to three passages of Scripture. And I want you to look at three statements, three verses in Scripture, in light of what we've just said about the prophet, the priest, and the king. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. These verses that I ask you to turn to are going to be ones that several of you would have memorized already. They're verses you know. But 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 is the first one I want you to to read. You're going to think, what in the world does this have to do with Christ being a prophet, priest, and king? But we're going to hit the clutch here in just a minute and put things back in gear. So just bear with me. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The next verse is Romans 3, Romans 3 and verse 19. Here we read, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And then just across your page, Romans 5. And verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now each of those verses is merely a sampling of the Bible's description of three very important aspects of man's condition. I don't want to insult you, but here are the facts from Scripture. The Bible says that man left to himself is ignorant, guilty, and powerless. That's the state of mankind. Ignorant, guilty, and powerless. Not flattering terms at all, but terms that begin to encapsulate the desperate condition that every man finds himself in outside of Christ. And these also represent the three greatest needs that every man has as a fallen son of Adam. He is ignorant, he is guilty, and he is powerless. Now as you study what the Bible has to say about the mediatorial offices of Christ, pushing the clutch in, now we're smoothly into second gear, as you read what the Bible says about each of the mediatorial offices of Christ, you'll find that each mediatorial office specifically addresses one of these needs that man so desperately has. You see, man is ignorant of God. He does not know God. Other than the fact he's created in the image of God, he has the law of God stamped on his heart, he knows that there is a God, but he's ignorant of God. He stands guilty before God. He's powerless to ever get to God. 
The normal job of a mediator, as I described it earlier, is to get both sides to compromise to, to somehow meet in the middle. Both sides have to give a little bit for reconciliation to happen. Now, in the gospel, we have a different issue. In the gospel, we have the issue that the law of God is inflexible. God cannot give a little bit. God can't water down his law. He can't lower his standard so that you can get over the hump. God cannot compromise his nature, who he is, his moral law. It can't be, it can't be changed. And so it is man that must be changed. Man must be reconciled to God. God is at war. He's at enmity with the sinner. But the sinner is at enmity with God. But God is unmovable. God is immutable. He is unchangeable. And so it is man who must be changed. That ignorance must be overcome. That guilt must be dealt with. And that powerlessness must be dealt with as well. So let's put this all together. As a prophet, Christ deals with man's ignorance. As a priest, Christ deals with man's guilt. And as a king, Christ deals with man's weakness. And so those are the three points I want to put before you this evening as we consider Christ, that one who is greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, and greater than Solomon. So I want to show you, first of all, that as a prophet, Christ deals with your ignorance. Now, those of you very familiar with the catechism, you know that when man was originally created, he was created with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Now, we could use the catechism as our framework here. As a prophet, Christ deals with the the fallen knowledge. As a priest, he deals with the fallen righteousness. As a king, he deals with the fallen holiness. Christ is the answer to the problems of mankind. But as a prophet, Christ deals with your ignorance. The Bible tells us that man was originally created in knowledge. He had a right knowledge of God. Adam in the garden did not have a comprehensive knowledge of God. That would be impossible for the finite to comprehend the infinite. His knowledge was not comprehensive but Adam's knowledge in the garden was correct. Adam had no wrong thoughts of God. What he did know about God was right. He he did not distrust God before the fall. But by believing the lie, his thinking was immediately corrupted. The moment... Adam ate of that forbidden fruit. Immediately, his knowledge of God changed. It became perverted for the first time. And he was afraid. And he thought, stupidly so, that he could hide from the all-seeing God of heaven. And so that's what he did. He went and he hid himself. Man began to think that he could figure out his own way. And so what was Adam's first attempt at reconciling himself to God? Well, he tried fig leaves, and that did not work out so well at all. You fast forward in Scripture, and you come to the Tower of Babel, and there 
men in their ignorance of who God really was thought that they could get to God on their own somehow, that if they just banded together, if they just joined forces, if they just cooperated, they could attain to God. Men have thought that they could worship God in their own way throughout history. They've invented their own gods, and we have religion after religion after religion that has populated the earth, all as a result of men ignorantly rejecting the God of heaven. All this is because of that natural ignorance, because of the fall. But Christ solves the problem of our ignorance by revealing to us his will. He has revealed to us in the scriptures what he wants us to know. When Jonah preached to the Ninevites, the word of God dealt with their ignorance. The Ninevites, they didn't know that they were going to be destroyed in 40 days. They were ignorant of that fact that destruction was coming in just 40 days. And as the word of the Lord came to them, and the Holy Spirit superintended that word, at the preaching of Jonah, they repented. And God's wrath was averted. And Jonah wasn't destroyed. I'm sorry, Nineveh was not destroyed. But Christ said, now a greater prophet than Jonah has come. Jonah's message was a message of wrath. Repent, or wrath is coming. Christ's message is a message of salvation and redemption. Jonah's was a foreign prophet with great prejudice to a foreign land. But Christ was one who came and took to himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He took to himself human flesh. He suffered in human flesh. He died. He took the wrath of God to himself. But Christ deals with this problem of ignorance in two ways. First of all, he does it by his word. After Adam and Eve sinned, God gave them his word. God came and he, he sought them out. Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done? And you know Genesis 3.15, that first just little encapsulated message of gospel truth that I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This first gospel promise identifying a glimmer of hope of a redeemer that would come on the scene that would fix all this mess. But that was the word of God. That was the promise that came. Adam and Eve were ignorant of how they could be saved. But yet God presented to them this plan of redemption. And he has enunciated that plan. He has, he has revealed gospel truth. Hebrews tells us in various ways, in sundry fashions. He did it in the Old Testament, sometimes by direct speech. He spoke literally and audibly from heaven. For example, at Mount Sinai, he spoke audibly, and the people heard the voice of God. They were terrified at that, and they said, Moses, you go up there. But it was direct speech from God directly to man. Saul, before he became Paul on that Damascus road, heard direct speech from Christ. And then God sent the prophets to, to preach. God spoke through the prophets, through Moses as a prophet, through 
uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the rest of the prophets. And you, you read over and over and over in the prophets, the, the mantra, if you will, of the prophets, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. God has said, this is the Lord's word. And it's over and over that it's, it's clear that this is God speaking. This is God coming to reveal himself to mankind. And then we have the scriptures now. We don't have those Old Testament prophets with us. We aren't to anticipate direct speech from heaven. But we have the scriptures. We have the word of God. We have what Peter identifies even a more sure word of prophecy that's been given to us. We have a Bible to read. And we even are told by the Apostle John the purpose of the Scriptures. These things have I written unto you that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. As our prophet, Christ exercising this office and revealing Himself to us through His Word deals with our ignorance, deals with fallen knowledge of who God is. God has revealed Himself to us so that we can know him. As A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes, God cannot be fully known, but he can be truly known because he has revealed himself in the scriptures, in the word of God. It's primarily the scriptures that reveal Christ and that's primarily the way he operates as our prophet but there is another way that he has revealed himself to us, not only by his word, but also by his spirit. Christ, before he entered into glory, before he ascended, actually before he went to the cross, in John chapter 14, he told his disciples, I'm going to go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again and I'm going to receive you to myself. And the disciples were worried about this. They were troubled with this because for three, three and a half years or so, they had been following Christ very closely. They, they leaned on him. He, he was the one that was their teacher, their master. And the Lord tells them not to worry. He's going to send the comforter. And so we read in John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And so it's by his word and by his spirit, Christ exercises this office of prophet to reveal to us the things that we need. And you as a child of God are indwelt by the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is there to teach you and to guide you into all truth, to reveal the scriptures to you. Those that would say, I don't read the Bible because I can't understand the Bible, are really either admitting or they are denying the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret the Word. We have the Holy Spirit to interpret the Word. We believe in the priesthood of the believers. The Spirit overcomes that spiritual ignorance. And so as a prophet... Christ gives his people a right knowledge of God. He overcomes that ignorance that's due to sin. But moving on to see Christ as our priest. As our priest, Christ solves the problem of your guilt. Christ is the greater priest. We read in verse 6 of our passage here in Matthew 12 that in this place 
is one greater than the temple. The temple ceremonies were only types and shadows of reality. They weren't the real thing. Christ is the reality, the blood of bulls and goats. That's not what saved the Old Testament believer. The Old Testament believer went through the process. It's in the Lord's providence. We read from Leviticus 1, and we read something of that process. Never miss the point. I'm always reminded by this. Don't miss the point. We think of those Old Testament people. They brought their animal. They gave it to the priest, and the the priest killed the animal and did the thing. But the priest didn't kill it. Did you catch that in Leviticus 1? If you you were bringing the sin offering, you came, you put your head on that animal, and you killed it. And the priest collected the blood. But you put the knife to the throat of that animal and killed it. What a picture of what my sin did to Jesus. What your sin did to Jesus. It's way more sterile and abstract to, well, there's my goat and take it and do what you have to do with it and I'm good, right? No, you killed it. You had to do it. But that didn't save you. It was just a picture of what Christ would do. And that Old Testament believer looked at that and had to realize, I keep having to do this every week. This is not working. And so he had to look forward. He had to look forward at another sacrifice, the sacrifice that was promised. See, man was originally created with a righteousness, a holiness toward God, Ephesians 4.24, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Adam in the garden had that constant communion with God. He walked with the Lord. In the the cool of the day, the cool of the garden, he walked with the Lord. He had conversations with the Lord. He had right fellowship with the Lord. There was was no friction. There was nothing to separate them. There There was nothing to hinder the relationship at all until Adam sinned. And that guilt of his sin, his realization and understanding that he was naked, naked before God, naked spiritually before God, it made him afraid and he went and he hid himself. Guilt always leads to fear. You may have co-workers that are constantly talking of their fear. Guilt leads to fear. The Bible tells us the wicked flee when no man pursueth. They're afraid because they know in their heart Guilty, I've done wrong. You've done this. You're driving down the interstate and you crest the hill and there he sits over in the grass and you immediately hit the brakes and then where do, you, where do your eyes go? Rearview mirror. Did he pull out? Is he coming? Right, you know you're guilty. If, if you're doing 80 and it says 65, I mean, you're, you're, you're guilty. And you, you just feel all that in your chest, all that in your heart. Maybe you people are good and you don't speed. You don't understand what I'm talking about. But guilt produces fear. 
that, that feeling, you get all knotted up. Our sin is so evident, we can't hide it. We're sinners before God. We try to cover it up, do we not? We do all sorts of things to try to cover up our guilt, cover up our sin. But there's only one way for it to be dealt with, and that is through Christ, through the blood of Christ. How does Christ, as our priest, solve the problem of man's guilt? Well, he does it three ways. First of all, he does it by satisfying divine justice. Now, in theology, we use a big fancy word for the satisfaction of divine justice. We call it propitiation, the appeasement of wrath. And as sinners, we deserve that wrath. Of course we do. We, we dealt with that somewhat this morning when we were looking at that woman taken in adultery. She deserved punishment. She had sinned. Of course she had. And so she deserved the punishment that, that would have come to her without forgiveness, without the, the covering and, and the, the blood of Christ. But yet we read in Scripture that Christ took that wrath to himself. 1 John 2 for example, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the appeasement of God's wrath. He is the, the satisfaction of God's wrath that is due to us because of our sins. That's what the verse says. We know that God's wrath is satisfied because of the resurrection. Because Christ rose again. We... Didn't get to this part in Leviticus. You'll get there in six, no, 15 weeks. You'll come to Leviticus 16. And you'll read there of the Day of Atonement. And that high priest who, on the Day of Atonement, he went into that most holy place with the blood. Only one person could go in there. He could only go one time a year. And the congregation stood outside and they were watching with bated breath. For what? for that priest to come out of that place. Because if he went in without blood, he, was, he would have been slain if he came with no sacrifice. He couldn't go to the mercy seat with no blood. But he went with blood, and he presented the blood. And when he came out, it was all part of the object lesson of an accepted sacrifice. The priest wasn't slain. The priest lives, and he came out. A picture of the resurrection, a picture that divine justice had been satisfied. And so when we talk about this, the, the theological aspect of Christ as our priest satisfying divine justice, Propitiation is that part that we refer to as the Godward aspect of the atonement. The atonement deals with God's wrath against me. But what about me? What about my sin? How is that dealt with? And so as a priest, he solves the problem of our guilt by satisfying divine justice, but also by reconciling us to God, by making that reconciliation. This is what we read in Hebrews 2, verse 17, that Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That reconciliation, it does include propitiation, but it includes another important theological truth that we call expiation. 
That is the, the removal of guilt. The removal of our guilt. Left to ourselves, man, because of that guilt, is at war with God. His sin makes him opposed to God. It makes him fight against God. It makes him ignore God. It makes it so that God is not in his thoughts. But reconciliation can happen only if both parties are dealt with. And in the gospel, man is at war with God. God is at war with man. Christ, by propitiation, deals with the wrath of God. And by expiation, he removes our sin, our guilt before God. And then the last aspect of Christ as our priest is that he makes intercession for us. And we've sung of that already. Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's there at the right hand of the Father, pleading the merits of his blood on our behalf, doing that work of intercession. And because Christ is our great high priest, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come and seek him. We've been reconciled. God's wrath is removed. Our guilt is gone. Our standing is right. We are holy and righteous and justified in the sight of God. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. We receive that. And now we're part of his family. We've been adopted into the family of God. We're reconciled. And Christ as our priest has dealt with that problem. And so as a prophet, he deals with our ignorance. As a priest, he deals with our guilt. And then lastly, as a king, he solves the problem of our weakness. Solomon is mentioned in verse 22. Solomon was a great king. He had vast resources. And this queen of the south, she came and she was just amazed. And she said, even the half of it has not even been told me. I've, I've heard great things, but I haven't heard half of the glory of this King Solomon. He had vast resources. He had great wisdom. Yet it all pales into insignificance compared to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a far greater than Solomon because with Christ, he has resources that are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He has a wisdom that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And so, if you're honest with yourself, you, you have to admit the fact of your own spiritual weakness. We looked at some of that this morning just in passing that whole argument that Paul makes there in Romans 7. You can't read through Romans 7 without raising your hand and saying, hey, that's me. I'm, I'm Paul, I feel you. I'm just like you. I know there's things I'm not supposed to be doing, and I'm so weak. I do them anyway. I know there's these things I need to be doing. I'm so weak, and I can't, I can't seem to do them. I'm so weak. I need so much help. And we all wrestle with that Romans 7 syndrome. We all wrestle with that. We all are spiritually weak. The, the spirit is willing, sure. But the flesh is so weak. And we need a king. We need someone with strength to step in and to help us. And Christ is a king. He does deal with that weakness. He does it, first of all, by leading us away from the world. 
A king's a leader. There's no doubt about that. A king is a leader. That's what a king does. He leads his people. Acts 15, verse 14. Simeon tells us how Christ led his people. Let me read the verse to you. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Christ, as our leader, gives that effectual call of the gospel. In making that call, he draws us to himself. And he leads us in the way of righteousness. He leads us away from the things of this world. He leads us away from sin and to himself. Mindful of Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He leads us out of the wilderness into green pastures. He he takes us away from the chaos and the noise, and he brings us to the still waters, literally the waters of quietness. He takes us away from the, the chaos and the mess of life. And he leads us to a place of safety. We're, we're too weak to escape those entanglements in ourselves. We have to have someone to lead us there, to guide us there, to, to hold our hand and bring us there, as it were. He preserves us in times of testing from sin. Do we not pray? We read, well, again, the Lord's providence in some of our Bible reading overlapping with some of this. We read the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm always amazed thinking on that. I'm reminded of the story in Genesis 20. I won't have you turn there, but I'll beg your memory of this. In Genesis 20, Abraham comes to Egypt, to Abimelech, who is the, the king of Egypt at that time. This is not Pharaoh, but king of Egypt. And he lies about Sarah. He says, she's my sister. And so Abimelech takes her, incorporates her into the harem. And at night, the Lord comes to Abimelech. And he says to Abimelech, don't do this wicked thing. You've been misled. You've been lied to. She's not really, I'm obviously ad-libbing here. She's not really Abraham's sister. She's really Abraham's wife. Genesis 20, verse 6, And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou did this in the integrity of thine heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. I just find that amazing. That here the Lord in a dream is communicating with a man who is a pagan an unbeliever, Abimelech. And he warns Abimelech, don't do this sin. And Abimelech's answer is basically, I was lied to, I didn't know. And the Lord says, I understand that. That's why I stepped in. That's why I am here as a roadblock. I'm withheld thee from sinning against me. The Lord prevented a wicked man from doing what wicked men do. And here's the the thing about that. 
the Lord still does that. This is what we teach when we talk about total depravity. Man is not as depraved as he has the potential of being. He could be more depraved. People could be more wicked than they are. But common grace, the Lord throttles that back and, and prevents their wickedness from just running absolutely rampant. And if the Lord does this for wicked Abimelech, I'm convinced that the Lord does that for me and for you. We would die in a pile. We would be shocked to death if we knew the times that the Holy Spirit stepped in and just, eh, you're going to go this way instead, and kept you and prevented you from sinning, even unbeknownst to you. Sometimes we have spiritual hindsight to look back and see situations in our lives and realize, you know, that would have been an absolute train wreck had I done that. And we see maybe one little thing or we see a little collection of circumstances. The Lord spared me from that absolute disaster. The Lord does that as our King. He preserves us from sin. He upholds us in times of suffering. This is what he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. This is Christ exercising this office of a king, of, of leading and, and taking care of his people. But we also know that a king is a warrior. And as a king, Christ destroys all his and our enemies. He puts them down. He deals with the foe. He deals with the enemy that would come against us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers. And Christ deals with those by His Spirit. Remember Jehoshaphat. He had an enemy of a million people coming against him. And the Lord comforted him. And He said to Jehoshaphat, be not afraid. Every time the Bible says, be not afraid, if you read the context, anybody with any sense would be scared to death. right? But the Lord says, be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. There is Christ as a king, standing in the way of the enemy, defeating the enemy, overthrowing the enemy, even to that last enemy that will be destroyed, the enemy of death. And the Lord deals with death. The Lord has dealt with death. And He gives His people abundant life. If you're saved, you have that abundant life. You'll never perish in hell. You'll never experience that death because that death has been destroyed. Christ is our King, destroyed it. He dealt with it. He's put it away. So the applications of the lessons learned here are, are vast and great when we consider Christ as a prophet, a priest, and of a king. If you're astute, you'll know all I've done is just quoted the catechism to you. And that's my outline. I have quoted the catechism to you. We know these things. I'm not preaching to you tonight anything new. I'm not preaching to you anything that you've never heard before. But as we consider Christ in these offices, does it not help us every day? Because I don't know what to do. As a dad, I have no idea what to do. 
in my job sometimes. I have no idea what to do. As a pastor, I have no idea what to do. How do I get help there? Well, Christ as a prophet deals with that ignorance. When my flesh would condemn me, when, when Satan would hurl accusations, how do I deal with that, those feelings of guilt? How do, how do I get rid of that? Well, Christ is my priest. When I don't know which way to go, when I feel helpless and, and hopeless and powerless, how do, how do you go forward? Well, you've got a king that will lead you in the way that you need to go. Christ is not a future king. Christ is a king now. He's on the throne now. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And he's spoken through his word. He is our mediator, prophet, priest, and king. Amen.